HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, Food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm -hmm. And so I literally go around little slips of paper and and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, I'm in the studio with Nikki Marcellin. Nikki is the chef and founder of Epicurious Safari, a bespoke boutique food experience company. Epicurious Safari focuses on providing unique experiences for clients while showcasing flavors of the Afro-Diasporan tapestry. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Hi. Hey, how's it going? I, it's going well. It's going well. It's cold. <laughs> it <laughs> it is. got really cold all of a sudden. It's very cold. It's freezing outside, but yeah. you hopefully didn't have to travel too far. Um, no, I didn't. I took an Uber. Good for you. <laughs> I abuse the Uber sometimes. Yeah. So I'm rocking like a 50% off thing right now, so... <laughs> well, we can't blame you because it's about three degrees, um, which is nothing like where you grew up. Um, yes, nothing like that at all. You're I, from I'm, Haiti? Yes, I'm from Haiti. I was born in Port-au-Prince. Um, so like my dad w- worked in America, but I was born in Haiti. So I had like, I'm a U.S. citizen with like a birth abroad. Um, but I grew up there and my parents sent me to school there. So like a lot of my formative years and me getting to know and recognize like different things in society 
um, was spent in Haiti. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> what else do you want to know? I mean, I'm just <laughs> curious, like, what, like, what was life like in Haiti? Like, what did, what did you eat there? Um, what was your school like? Okay. Um, <laughs> life was, well, life was great. Life was amazing. I think, like, when you're little, you think, like, oh, could be so much better Mm. but compared to other people I think I had it very well um growing up uh I got to come to America or go to France or Canada for like spring break or like you know Christmas um during the summers I would go spend like summers and, and like the village where my grandma and my mom grew up and just sort of um just chill it's still the same (laughs) as I remember it when I go back now and it's just so refreshing to like knock me back down to earth and get to know all those things so a lot of like um my food identity and who I've become and like my love for food and preparation and just um different practices came from those summers because I just remember making different things with my grandma, making different things for my dad. Like I remember one of like my vivid memories is making my dad goat stew at like eight and it came out well. (laughs) (laughs) It came out well. The flavors were good, but um, I mean, how discerning were you at eight years old? I was pretty discerning. Yeah. I think I, I, I think like my mom, my mom is classically trained and my dad has a really refined palate and everyone in my family are sort of cooks. So I think it was great. And it was like the reason it wasn't like as good and somebody needed to go in and fix it is because I didn't realize that, oh, goat is very tough. You <laughs> swear. Yeah. This is why like, I was like, oh, I don't have papaya leaves. It's fine. Like I can just do it down slowly but that's sort of to break down like the enzymes help break down the tissue um but it was it was great and I I think I that's one of my wildest memories and I think I just sort of remember just loving cooking and loving making something for somebody else and having them like appreciate it and that's a lot of our culture so yeah did you did your mom teach you how to cook like do you have memories of being actively taught no, I actually don't have any like I have memories of being in the kitchen um, and watching like my parents cook, like watching my grandmother cook, my aunt cook. But like I would probably I would always go off somewhere. But if I needed to like make myself an omelet, like theoretically, I knew how it happened. So I think it's just sort of like. <laughs> they say like children learn when they're in the womb. So yeah. I think I just sort of inherited those because my mom's a pretty great cook. And you learned through osmosis. Or yeah, something. I think I learned through osmosis. Um, and also like another reason why I say I've always been in love with food. My mom always like tells the joke and my mom and my grandmother tells the joke about how when I was little, they would go in the kitchen and just like my teeth mark would be on everything. <laughs> so like the onions, like carrots, like tomatoes and like just like bite them because I just wanted to know what they tasted like and what they were like. <laughs> so like everything they were cooking with, like I put my mark on it. Um, that's I mean that must have been annoying for them, but that's pretty adorable. <laughs> um, she thinks that she now says it's adorable, but I don't know that might that might have been annoying for me. Go yeah. <laughs> go for the tomatoes and like it's like a little too little. I like that. You're curious. Marks. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so I just like remember that and mixing spices. Um, when you're in Haiti from a young age, like you, I think you start if you're from like a cooking family, you start learning about um, just like flavors and how to like layer them and how to just sort of make things happen and make flavors happen and all that stuff because when we were little we would be in charge of like cleaning rice or making the spice like making the marinade so like your job was to gather everything wash them and then like make the marinade and like a mortar and pestle very old school and that's still how like when I go to Haiti, we do it like here. I just use my food processor, but <laughs> um, and then just like mixing different spices and learning about all these things. So, yeah, I love that. That like having an understanding of like what spices go together to create different flavors is like a part of your education. Yeah. <laughs> so from a young age, that was something that happened from a young age. I was learning how to make like different liqueurs like mm which is kind of weird um, for like if I mean, we're kind from, of awesome. Yeah. Kind of awesome. So I learned, uh, I think I, it was like when my grandma died, grandpa died. Um, and Haiti is like, we have a lot of traditions, but then there are some traditions that just sort of, no one really practices anymore, but funerals are one of those things that like we really, go in for and care about and like we send people off like a, with a bang um and food plays a big part of it like goats are slaughtered and like rice comes in and mm-hmm. like half the town is invited and people fly in and like it's like a three-day affair and everything is made from scratch like fresh bread is being made like from the minute the person is like in the morgue hmm. and one of my memories is making like different type of liquors with my grandmother. So like hibiscus and like cherry um, and making climas, which is sort of like um, coconut with milk, um, reduced down sugar. And it has like overproof poured into it as well as rum, a little lime zest. Like, so I just remember making those things and trying it and being like, oh, it needs more alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> it needs more. It needs more of a punch. And um, yeah, so those things, I sort of had like an informal education, um, but also at the same time formal because my mother was making like puff pastry in front of me when I was like 10, 12, um, and four or five. It, it was making different things. So like one of the first things I had to learn how to make was rice. And my mom will tell you, I just perfected it. In her <laughs> eyes, even though I think I've always, <laughs> I've always had a pretty good handle on it, but in her eyes, I've just perfected rice. So that's a big compliment. Well, I love the idea that um, for funerals, everyone starts cooking things from scratch. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like here with funerals, you know, no one would ever Really I just take stopped the, by the shop. The shop stuff, right? I mean, like I've been, you know, I've been to funerals, and it's it's like that. It's like you yeah. just get packaged, whatever. Because yeah. I don't think people give themselves permission to create anything for a funeral because that feels like you want to make that effort when it's like more of a celebratory time, yeah. like Thanksgiving. Like everyone starts cooking, and you know, you like you really go in. But for funerals, it's like that would maybe feel too indulgent and not appropriate for the time. But in yeah. fact, I mean, that makes so much sense that you would you would want to create something in this moment where you're, you know, acknowledging that someone else has passed. Um, 
yeah, I think it's a way for people to just allow themselves to send the person off. Because mm-hmm. um, I know, like, my uncle, my grandmother did not have a great relationship with my grandfather, but, like, they still allowed themselves to do that. And that's their own way of just sort of letting that person go. So I can see how it would be very therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. No one really cries until you're at the cemetery and then when you get there you know people do their crying thing and then after that you leave and you go to the after thing and people are just eating and it's just like normal and people are like bring on the whiskeys Haitians love their black label it's, <laughs> like, it's it needs to change <laughs> I'm just like, um, but Haitians love whiskey and scotch it's yeah good to know <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't bring any. <laughs> no, it's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about when you left and why you left. Um, I left permanently because I had been coming back here back and forth since I was little. I left permanently to come to school um, like 12 or 11-ish um, because there was a lot of sort of unrest in Haiti with... Um, Alistide and all those different things and just kids from a certain type of families were sort of being kidnapped and my parents were like, all right, it's time. Although Were you, you want- from a certain kind of family where you, you were? Yeah, vulnerable. we were definitely targeted. I went to like, pri- I went to an all girls private school. Like we had drivers, like we lived in a certain neighborhood. So people see that as a certain way. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so with all that happening, and I think one day something happened with like um, me getting picked up from school, and then my mom heard about it, and then she was just like, "All right, we like you. It's time that you like, you know, really take advantage of this citizenship, and it's good instead of coming just straight for college, you can just come like before college and just get that those formative years in here." And it was such a culture shock <laughs> when I moved here permanently. Because when you're on vacation, it's all fun. You know, sure. you're here for two months. It's What was the most shocking part of it? I think I always tell people the most shocking part of it was people make a big deal about the fact that you're black. Where, um, where did you move to? Um, I moved to New York. And then I didn't go to school in New York, though. Um my mom lived in New York and I went to school in boarding school in Connecticut. So which is um, a pretty white place. <laughs> it's very white. From it's what very, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure like a lot of people listening are just what what's with her voice? I've gotten like, are you are you from California a lot from different people? But it's just sort of I, I kind of picked it up because I went to New England for school and then stayed for high school, did like Was it I mean, was that an effort? Was that strategic that you um it was strategic it was i asked to go no that you i mean i it sounds like you had an accent when you moved and then at some point um yeah it was definitely a way of coping Mm -hmm. and it was definitely yeah a way of just me like putting on that cloak um and just sort of assimilating which i am learning when i'm slowly learning now that I don't have to mm-hmm. and I'm okay like being in the space that I am. So, um, and for a while that in itself like changed my identity with like 
myself as well as like my relationship with food and the way I looked at it and what I deemed good. Like <laughs> suddenly I can't, I went from the kid that would never like eat at McDonald's. Right. To someone that was just like, Oh yeah, I'll go to McDonald's because everyone's going and that seems like the thing they're doing. And I didn't want to like pack my lunches anymore. And so in order to fit in, yeah, in order to fit you in, kind yeah. of, changed your standards yeah um but that only lasted for like two years (laughs) i'm 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 very much an individual in that sense that i get bored when i start like following what does it feel right to me um into like my true essence like um for a while so I just kind of reverted back to myself and I didn't care and I would make rice and beans and pack it and all that stuff. And that's just followed me through college. And um, I also attended college in Providence. Um, so I could have left. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Did you, I mean, did you feel like you had to explain yourself a lot and was food helpful in that way or did it make you feel more ostracized because you were eating things that were different and you were showing, you know, showing up with rice and beans instead of eating McDonald's. Was that useful to you? Cause you were like, this is who I am and I'm happy about that. And I have this like mechanism to express myself or did it make you feel like you stood out further? I think it made me feel like I stood out, but I didn't care. And I had a problem with the fact that like, I didn't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I'm just like, I could care a little more about what they think. Um, but in relation to that question, the school that I went to had um, a restaurant program. Like, if you decided to take cooking for the first two years on the on your third year, um, you could like there's a there was a bistro in the school that like we it was student run and every you would be in these groups of five, and you would come up with um a theme or a restaurant concept and that like you would develop that over the term and then when it came to your time you would formulate the menu so I think during that time it was really hard because I wanted to serve like the food that I knew and I wanted to show like show a little part of myself but everyone we would pick recipes out of like cookbooks. So everyone was like heading towards Martha Stewart and like um, Food Network and all those things. And I would just be like, I don't want to cook that. Like, <laughs> I don't want to cook that. I just want to like, I want flavor. And I want like, why can't we make like stew? Why can't we make like black bean soup and all those things? I'm like, at this point, I'll even like settle for like American Southern food. Like, um, but even that was a problem because um, the people that were in my class or in my group saw black Southern food a certain way. Um, so if we wanted to do that, it would be like mashed potatoes with a lot of butter and cream and like fried chicken and maybe like greens and like sauteed greens and you would serve that. And then... Um, they couldn't figure out like something vegetarian. So it would just like be like a one-off menu. Um, So even that in itself, I started questioning and I'm just like, there has to be more. Um, Cause I, 
I know my culture and I know my heritage and I it's very strong and deeply rooted. But then I came here and I was just like, oh, there I for a long time, the rest of the world like we think that America does not have a culture because it's sort of a melting pot and you guys don't have a um, just sort of food heritage sort of. But I'm just like, but then I started thinking like, well, hot dogs, hamburgers, that is a food culture. Yes, it's kind of, you know, just one off, but it is a food culture. And it was really onto me to start discovering like what is Southern food about and um, who are the people contributing to it and why is it, not in like the forefront of things now that in 2019 southern food's starting to become like at the forefront um of the food movement but like then it was just um really really rare to find somebody that was just like doing it and doing it right um and also like at that time it was kind of a bad word to be like haitian Mm. <laughs> like people didn't even know where Haiti is. Yeah. Haiti was like I got that question a lot. Like, oh, you're from Haiti? Is that like in Africa? Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, no, it's in the Caribbean. Um, even now, like some people still don't know. Like, um, somebody was talking the other day, and they're like Haiti, and I'm just like, yeah, it's in the Caribbean. If you're thinking that's where it is, that's where it is. Um, so. Now I think people are starting to embrace our cultures more because it's sort of mainstream and we have like rappers that are Haitian and like Rick Ross shouts us out a lot <laughs> like because <laughs> um, he has Haitian friends and there's sort of like a little um, uh, microcosm that's growing with, you know, like within like the Haitian community where like the Haitian artists are just really starting to do their thing and putting themselves out there, putting themselves mainstream. Um, whereas like, they're not just known to us. So people know where it is. And then, um, the earthquake that happened really put us on the map. So, but when I was in school, it was hard. Like I never got bullied. Cause I always tell people that I never got bullied. I'm a certain type of person. Like I got, I think I, I think somebody threatens to bully me once. And I was like, all right, it's me and you. <laughs> like, like, let's go. Like we're, <laughs> like, we're not doing this. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to, like, be miserable for, like, four years because you want to make yourself feel good. Yeah. Um, but being Haitian was, like, a reason why people bullied you. Like, sure. you know what I mean? It was just like, oh, you have AIDS since you're from Haiti. Oh, and my just God. Like, I'm like, do you know how HIV is transferred? Clearly like, not. Um, yeah. So... Kids yeah. are so dumb, though. I mean, they'll Kids like use any dumb. excuse, like anything that feels other. You yeah. know, they're like, "What is the dumbest thing I can say about this?" <laughs> Very dumb. <laughs> um, yeah. So just even like my African friends that went to my school, like even for them, it wasn't that easy because people would just be like African booty scratcher and like all these things, and it was just like no like do you talk to your mother with this mouth like don't know like you don't even know our culture and just sort of the ignorance behind it like I've been at like like even now I still get asked like I like two or three years ago somebody was like you're very articulate you say you're from Haiti and I'm just like yeah and they're like huh <laughs> so like did you go to like an English school I'm like partially and then she was just like oh okay you know like a lot about like I was working 
at a fine dining restaurant then. And she was like, you know a lot about like just this sort of stuff. One, I got trained. Two, I lived like in a McMansion when I was in Haiti. So like, whereas now I live in like an apartment in Brooklyn. So that is the most ignorant question to mm-hmm. infer or even say to somebody that you think they were like just making food from a hut and like, right. But all people know is what they've seen. You yeah. Know? All and, people know is what they've seen. I mean, and, I'm not defending them. I'm just no, saying that's like, so the images true. that come to mind are like war torn, you know, starving children. And it's like, well, that's, that must be everything. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's either, there's like two extremes, right? Um, when people think about Haiti, it's either like, oh my God, I was on the carnival cruise. I like stopped at Labadie. It was amazing. And I was like, do you know that Labadie's like, it's rented? Like we rented it out and even like our vendors are not allowed to step foot in there. And mm-hmm. that's why like you probably didn't see a lot of Haitians. So that's not a true representation of Also, Haiti. if you're going on a cruise, maybe <laughs> yeah. you're not having the most authentic travel experience. Yeah. Okay. And even to kind of put my Haitian brothers and sisters out there a little bit, when they go to Haiti, they show like, they're like, I think they do it with like a kind of good heartedness. Like, Oh, I want to show what this country is about. So they'll go to like the resorts and they'll go to like the beach clubs and all that stuff and just show like beautiful water. But there's like an in between, right. That just sort of like movement, that everyday movement, like the market, um, real people, real people, like the children, like kids going to school in their uniform. Everybody wears uniforms in Haiti, um, even if you're in a public school. So like kids going in their uniforms, like you can spot who goes where, and you know if you have like beef with their school. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so like, just there's like beauty in that, and you know, like at one o'clock or like twelve thirty, like oh, everyone's gonna start like the streets are going to start smelling like food because that's like our dinner and everyone's going to start like putting their food out on the table and kids are coming home from school and then they're going to go to lessons. Like I find beauty in that. I don't think any, no, I don't think a lot of people showcase that. Like, um, yes, there's not electricity all the time, but like some of us have like generators and just sort of like that beauty and just like hilariousness when I go to Haiti. Like I'm always just like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Every time I go, I threaten. I always like threaten that the next time I go, I'm going to stay in a hotel. But like, I always go back to it because like, I love that. And um, especially going back home to where like my grandmother's from, it's like, it's a town, but it's a village and it's small and everyone knows each other. And everyone knows that like, I'm Alta's daughter. And I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> that's like this person's granddaughter and everyone knows stories of my mom that like my mom has doesn't even remember because they've been there like mm. forever it's and community yeah it's community and he's just like people have built collaboratives within them with themselves without knowing that it's a collaborative like um when i was younger my grandmother lived in this giant like there was like a giant plot of land and there was like multiple families that lived in it and they were all separate families but um everyone was ended up family you know what i mean like people supported each other people knew what was happening like people um when they went to the market on a saturday because like saturdays are like a big market day where like all the wholesalers come out and they like sell their stuff to the smaller vendors so 
there's like beauty in that like people just creating and surviving without even knowing what it is like on Sundays you'll cook for yourself and your family like a giant meal and like a nice Sunday like meal and then you have like people bringing you like three course meals themselves Mm. so you end up having like six different type of meals because people are just like oh it's Sunday I have to like feed my neighbor um even when it's not Sunday and people cook and they see that you haven't cooked, like people take the time to like put a bowl of food together and like close it and like bring it to your house um, within that like space and that compound. I don't want to call it a compound because compounds are like associated with like <laughs> weird to me. When I say compound, I'm just thinking like Mormons and like one husband. <laughs> I don't think we <laughs> took it that way. Okay. Um, Nikki, we're going to take a quick break and yeah. hear from the sponsor. And then um, let's come back and talk about Epicurious Safari. All right. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been chatting with Nikki Marcelin. She is the founder of Epicurious Safari. Um, so we haven't talked about that yet. I want to hear what that is. Okay. And um, you did go to culinary school. Yeah, I went after. to Johnson Wales. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you worked in um, several like Michelin starred restaurants. Yeah. And both front and back. Okay. And, you know, I, I kept getting this theme as you were talking about how you were like, I'm cooking what I'm supposed to be cooking. But yeah. like what I really want to be cooking is Haitian food. So I'm guessing that that feeling kind of stayed with you through your experience in culinary school and then in the different restaurants you worked in and probably maybe even led you to decide to start your own company, I'm guessing. Um, Yeah. So in culinary school, I sort of like during um, just like a test day, like a test day, like I got just sort of the wind knocked out of me because um, I was asked to make snapper the way I would make it back home. But like I went in, I filleted it. I did like all this like fancy stuff that I had learned like over the summer at like Jean-Georges. And I was just like, all right, like this plate shows like who I am and I'm growing and I'm like moving up there. 
And I go to the table and he tastes it and he was like, this is trash. <gasps> I'm like, and I was like, what? He's like, it's good. It tastes like I would make it. It doesn't taste like what you would make or what your mother would make. And I was like, well, I was trying to stick with the status quo and what I've been learning. And he was just sort of like, do what you know. Mm. Use what you're learning here um, as a tool or like as a seasoning on top, but like do what you know. And I sort of carried that with me throughout. Um, and then working in a restaurant and like just Michelin star restaurants, like everything is just very like precise and cut out. Um, I started cooking a lot of things and people would come and they would explain a dish to me that I'd have to like prepare certain facets for. And I'd just be like, wait, isn't this like, isn't this like this dish from this country? But it wouldn't have that name. Um, and it wasn't made that same way and the flavors were kind of off. And I wanted to bring that same like soul and flavor and punch to with the techniques that I was learning. So very like still my still like the things that I have learned since I was little to now um, to now and bringing the techniques that I've had been learning. So like bringing in like a few modernist techniques and a few like different things, like just like plating beautifully and how to like match like the flavors of garnishes and all that stuff. I wanted to bring it in and tighten it up and show the world that just um, Caribbean food and like African food and just food from like the diaspora in general could be beautiful. Like, and I could teach and I could feed you like chicken hearts like that's full of flavor full of bite and with the flavors of my home and you would love it and yes like you might look at it and just be like oh I never had before but you've had it you know you've paid <laughs> like $30 for it at like some <laughs> restaurant like you've had bone marrow like we're still doing those things but we're using it like in like sort of a ragu and we're putting like dumplings in there and adding like um just like bites of plantains and fresh tomatoes and all these fresh ingredients and backing it up and serving it and you get sort of that experience I'm just presenting it to you in another way and possibly full of color and I'm just allowing myself to be like very cocky about my food and what I cook and what I bring to the table um yeah so that's how it came about um Epicure Safari was like a senior project actually <laughs> and then i just sort of it's such kind a good of name yeah thank you um safari means not like safari going to the jungle and like shoot animals but safari <laughs> means journey yeah um so it's just sort of encompassed like my journey as a gastronome as a epicurean as a person who loves food um and so like travel. what is it is it like you do pop-ups um we do pop-ups um um and we also do like private dinners that are experiential so you tell me what you like and then we bring that in so when you totally say we different. i mean do you have other people or is it like i have like one-off people <laughs> okay. that i use we're not we're not there yet we're no no tiny. no that wasn't like a judgment <laughs> no, no no i know that i'm just like we're not there yet I'll, my goal is to like fire myself from every job yeah. i don't want to do my newsletter like i don't want to do my website like <laughs> that is the goal um 
But I started Epicurious Safari full time in July to sort of fund um, another project that was actually my real thesis in college. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on. And that just gives me the freedom and the time to just run around New York and meet with different people and go to like networking events and like meet well, with Do DCs. you want to tell us what that project um, is or is yes. that a secret? So it's not a, it's not a secret so much more because I, in order for me to like get advisors, I need to start speaking about it. Um, so it is a production studio that is also an incubator space and a co-working space for people within the hospitality and food industry and beverage. So the intent is to have a building where that all encompasses and the public can also come in and have first hand or first hand knowledge of what is happening within their space. And there will be classes that are held um, for people within the food industry. So we're going to be starting um, like I'm, the branding is still working. Like um, when that is up, you'll see it on my Instagram. Um, but we're going to be doing clinics of things that will be happening. We also plan on having a residency kitchen that people can come in and like spend a residency for six months if they're not really sure about if we, they want to, what their restaurant concept and like we'll have an incubator team that's really going to be behind them and helping them develop their team and develop their idea and get stronger within that. So we it it's going to be cheaper than like renting a space within New York because it's in your building. Um, and then you're get, you'll really get to build like your target audience and market and all that stuff. So in a kind of safe environment and, um, there'll be like a production studio, commercial kitchens for rent that you can either lease for a certain amount of time and, yeah, all your hot and cold stuff will be included in that. I like I'm working really hard on the financials so that it doesn't have to be separate like <laughs> the way other places are. Um, and from there, yeah, it will have like a photography slash sort of studio like this where people can come and do their podcast or shoot their like do their R&D and shoot their photos and um, meet with different beverage people and beverage labs that like people can really test and get to know each other. So the whole goal for the name is Lister. Um, it's Lister is a market when you're going to my town in Haiti. Um, so it, the whole goal is, Do you know to where build, it's going to be. I don't know where it's going to be yet. Okay. That's why <laughs> the it plan just sounds is like an enormous your, undertaking. It is very enormous, but that's why I'm, I'm kind of like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I decided. To, I mean, I think I can do it. The goal, the whole goal for it is to not. I think I know I can do it. The whole goal there is to um, build like VC. So that's what I've been really working on and really like focusing on that process. And um, it's hard, but I know it's a journey that I am that I want to take and I'm like into untackling. So better to have try than not try at all, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> um, So I'm very excited about that. And I know like a few people that I'm working with are very excited about it also. Um, but it's a space for us to, because there's not really a co-working space for the freelancers in our industry. And even me, who's like a private chef, doesn't really have the space to like do R&D and like really have like the kitchen size or the fridge size. So you get sort of get all that and you get the opportunity to 
build relationship with like farmers, build relationships with other people within the industry. So it's an opportunity to build community, um, create and foster like creativity, foster more learning and um, engagement and just sort of bridging that gap between like, oh, I'm pastry and you're color, you're savory and mm-hmm. like, I'm only beverage. When in general, we all kind of like, it all intertwines, you know? Um, well, in yeah. the meantime, why don't you tell us where we can find Epicurious Safari? EpicuriousSafari.co um, on Instagram also. I will be posting a list of events that we're doing one-offs of for the summer. So we have like a brunch series coming up. We have a bites series coming up. So that's just like a small fee that you pay and you get to just munch on different things I'm working on um, in my test kitchen. And like, it'll be paired with one cocktail or like one wine for the night. And that's really cheap. And you can also hire me for your next event. (laughs) Um, I'm doing elopements right now. So if you don't want to do it in a restaurant and you want to have the food that you want to have. Wait, elopements? Yeah. So people are eloping more than doing like traditional weddings. And when they elope, it's not that they don't want to spend money. They hire photographers. They get the pretty dress. They just don't want their family there. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) why not continue the trend and hire me to like do your meal for you and your closest friends? I love that. (laughs) And you don't have to really, you know, nobody I used to work in restaurants. We have to kick you after like two hours and a half. That doesn't have to happen. You still pay the same type of money that you would pay and you probably get more booze and you can just booze in your space in your home and just be more comfortable. So that's it. Everyone's yeah. eloping. <laughs> Call Nikki. She's Call got me. You. And yeah, for your next bachelorette party, your next dinner. Um, and then you also will get like a full taste of my heritage and what I have to offer and bring representing what you normally have in just new spirit and new um, picture and vibe. I love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on the yeah, show. Thank you so much for having pleasure. me. Best of luck with all of your incredibly ambitious, amazing sounding projects. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you listeners for tuning in. Uh, find us next week, Wednesday, 6 PM at heritage radio network.org and check us out on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.